Carl Cannon is the Washington bureau chief at Real Clear Politics, and he's one of the best, most tested, and venerated journalists in the business. So it's an honor today to have both him and Professor Ryan Burge helping us break down the election, its departure from the predictions by top pollsters, and the religion vote. Carl came to Washington in 1984, having already worked for six newspapers around the country. He says he caught Potomac fever and never looked back. Nearly four decades in, today he's got stories on, I think, almost everyone under the sun, from would-be presidential contenders, to campaign fundraisers, to clerics. He's covered every presidential election and every political convention since the Reagan administration, and he's earned two of the most prestigious journalism awards for his White House coverage, the 1999 Gerald R. Ford Prize for Distinguished Reporting of the Presidency and the 2006 Aldo Beckman Award for Excellence in Presidential News Coverage. These days, every Monday through Friday morning, he writes a daily post at Real Clear, weaving together notable events in U.S. history with breaking stories of the day. If you're interested, you can sign up in the show notes. And if you do, I bet you'll quickly see how those short pieces weave together a sense of history, the four books Carl's written, and a reporter's knack for paying close attention, reading the room, and adding EQ to IQ that makes his insights reach a notch deeper. Some reporters are really good at cutting through the noise to see the forest through the trees. Like in this recollection Carl makes, for instance, from a 2005 Faith Angle gathering. We had Rick Warren come to the Faith Angle Forum. So we got Rick Warren to come to Key West to talk to 24 journalists. And we're, we're around the table, I remember this, on whatever day it was, Monday, I think it was. And there were some pretty well-known authors there, secular authors, David Brooks, Malcolm Gladwell, the New Yorker. And so, you know, people had written best-selling books. Rick Warren had written, written, you know, Purpose Driven Life. And he said something, it was a throwaway line. And he said, you know, I had sold 18 million books before I got my first review in an American newspaper. And people gasped. <laughs> and woman who was sitting next to me, I won't say her name, but she's a very prominent reporter, leaned over and whispered in my ear and she said, that is all you need to know about bias in American journalism. Does that bias still exist in today's elite newsrooms? Professor of Political Science Ryan Burge of Eastern Illinois University joins Carl to discuss that enduring question. Ryan is a hard-charging scholar of American politics who keeps a careful eye on polling as well as some of the most consequential religion trends in the country. He's published recent papers in seven peer-reviewed journals, in addition to routinely providing counsel to politicos and journalists about religion voters and evangelical civic engagement. And he's currently writing a book about the so-called new kid on the religious block, the nuns. In this time of strange transition, Pew reports that nuns today comprise 26% of the country. And Ryan and Carl each consider leading undercurrents at work in this cycle's unprecedented turnout. Over 147 million Americans went to the polls this cycle to vote for either President Trump or President-elect Biden, plus several million more who opted for either candidate. And right there in the mix were Catholics, Evangelicals, Latino Christians, African-American Christians, the Mainliners, Jews, Mormons, Muslims, and those of no religion at all. So let's dive in with one of D.C.'s battle-tested journalists and an insightful observer of American religious political engagement. Enjoy the conversation. This year, 
And the, because of what happened in 2016, the pollsters assured us they had fixed problems like the one in Wisconsin, most famously, but also nationally. And we were assured that the polls were right. And before it happened, Frank Luntz, uh, the former Republican pollster, who's now just sort of a designated wise man, said, if we get this wrong, polling is broken. And on election night, as the returns came in and we once again had a cliffhanger just the way we did four years ago in the same states, albeit the results seemed to be reversed, people were saying, OK, polling's broken. Now, the three of us on this con- in this conversation, we don't look solely at national numbers or even state races. We're concerned with, with religious voters and how, how did Roman Catholics vote? And part of the problem with the polling the national polling being off, Joe Biden did not win this by 10 points, is that we're relying on exit polls. And we're not going to know really, we don't know today, we're not going to know for until we really have the time to look into this. But what seems to have happened is that Donald Trump had more support in these key states than the polls gave him credit for. And he had more support among Roman Catholics than the early polls showed. And he held and maybe even increased his standing among Christian Protestant evangelicals. That seems to be what happened. But we don't know for sure. But if he increased those numbers among evangelicals, who are those people? Because are some of them African-American? That's what we think. Are some of them Latino? That's what I think. And among Roman Catholics, white Roman Catholics, especially those who are the most devout, we did some polling on this at Real Clear with, with EWTN, the, who go to Mass weekly, who believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, who, you know, who are the most devoted to their church are also the most devoted to the Republican Party. These people came out in force for Donald Trump. So that's painting with a broad brush there. But religious, how re- religious voters behaved is of interest to both political parties and neither can take them for granted anymore. I agree with you, Carl. I think we're in, it's still the middle of the night. And there's been a robbery overnight, and we're still trying to figure out where we are, let alone who did the robbery and what tools they used, right? It's only been 10 days now, since the not even 10 days since the election. And so the hot take industry is heated up, and we're seeing all these hot takes based on, I think, faulty data. I think that exit polls have always been bad, but I think this year they've been atrociously bad. They are all over the place. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. A week ago, I was doing, you know, media interviews and media hits, and I was saying things that today I don't really know are true, looking at, you know, more data as it comes through, especially with white Catholics. I was convinced that Donald Trump did a lot worse with white Catholics this time than he did four years ago. I mean, I saw data that said that he would do eight points worse or 10 points worse. And now I'm less convinced of that than ever. Um, I, you know, the the data that I really look at is called the Cooperative Congressional Election Survey, which is a an academic survey, not really an exit poll. And what I love about it, it has seventy thousand respondents, so we get huge, you know, huge samples, huge subsamples. Margins of error are very, very small. And I got a first really quick cut at the data just um, late last week, and I saw that you know evangelicals were right in line with where they were, you know, four years ago. I saw that Catholics were probably right in line with where they were four years ago. There wasn't this five, seven, 10 point drop that we expected to see. I did see a little bit of shifting here. I think that's worth discussing amongst mainline Protestants, which is a group that a lot of people don't know a whole lot about, but I think are really kind of important electorally because mainline Protestants are your Episcopalians, your United Methodists, a lot of Presbyterians, a lot of, a lot of more moderate Protestants. If you're 
if you're Protestant but not evangelical, you're mainline. If your church has female pastors, you're mainline. If your church affirms LGBT people, then you're mainline. Those people have tr- predominantly been a Republican force in American politics for a long, long time. They were right of center. You know, even back in the 1970s and 80s, they were solidly Republican. And that's largely because they were kind of country club Republicans, right? Those are the people who are like, I want lower taxes and no regulation. But if you want to, you know, smoke weed or marry someone of the same sex, I really don't care. Over time, they shifted towards the Democrats. And in the polling, I say, I see 52% were were voting for Trump in 2016, now it's down to 47%, which is a five-point slide, pretty significant. And those are people who turn out because they're older, they have higher levels of education, they have higher levels of income. So they're a strong block, especially in Rust Belt states. The other narrative that I really see is that the nuns, the religiously unaffiliated, have shifted even further to the left over the last four years. Um, 14% of atheists voted for Trump in 2016. Now it's down to 10%, 23% of agnostics in 2016, down to 16%. And then nothing in particular, which is 20% of all Americans are nothing in particular. 38% of them voted for Trump in 2016. Now it's down to 33%. So you add those three together, and that's like two points nationally that Trump lost just amongst the nuns, which actually might be the story that I'm not seeing anyone write about is the nuns might be the ones who pulled pulled Biden up and Trump down. But again, it's still really, really early, and there's so many moving parts right now. We won't know a, a full picture until probably, you know, February or March at the earliest in terms of what actually happened in 2020. And hopefully Trump will have conceded by then so we can have our <laughs> inauguration. <laughs> well, I saw polling data yesterday that said only 20% of Americans think that, you know, that Trump has a, a standing in court when it comes to voter fraud. So that gave me some hope that maybe this will be wound up pretty soon. Otherwise, a lot of hot takes. Can I ask a quick question on the sort of overall numbers religion-wise in the United States? Yo, the overall picture, help educate, remind our listeners, you know, Pew comes out with new data every year. And I think their latest uh, data, I know, Ryan, you have a new book coming out about the nuns, which we'll want to hear about a little bit more. But their new data, you know, sort of notes that that's a, a significant uptick, but that still north of 70% of the country is Christian. They say 25.4% are evangelical. 14.7%, as you were just describing, are mainline Protestant. Six and a half, seven percent are African American Christian. Twenty-one, basically, percent are Catholic. One point six percent are Muslim. Half percent are Orthodox. So, remind us of sort of the landscape of the religion vote that you pay attention to, and why. Yeah. So there's there's three traditions that are basically the same size-ish in the same kind of pocket, and that is. Evangelical Protestants, about 22% of the population. Catholics are right around there, 21%, 22%. And then the nuns now are 21.5%. They've grown dramatically over the last 20 years. So those three groups together make up two-thirds of the population. Your main lines are one in 10 Americans, and you got your African-American uh, Protestants, you got your Jews, you got your other religious groups down below that. But really, the, the big groups in American politics are your evangelicals and your Catholics, and then your nuns. Those are really, when I think about the three groups that matter the most, I think every other group matters at the margins. But like, I have a lot of people on social media, like, tell me about the Mormons or tell me about the Buddhists. And I'm like, those people are 1% of the population, guys. Let's be realistic about what we're asking about here. You know, I had a reporter ask me last week, so did you think that the Muslims in Michigan made the difference? And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like Muslims are 3% of the population of Michigan, less than 1% of the entire nation's population. They shifted 10 points. That's one third of 1%. And now Michigan was close, but it wasn't that close. So when we talk about what groups matter, I think, and I get labeled bias all the time. Like, why do you talk about evangelicals and Catholics all the time? It's because there's a lot of them. 
right? Like you can't, you can only write so much about Buddhists when you only have a hundred of them in a sample. Like you don't have statistical power there. So really the groups I care about, and because they're large is white Christians, which are actually non-white Christians more and more as they're growing, but also the religiously unaffiliated. And I have data that shows that they might be over uh, 30 and maybe even 35% of the population today, depending on how you ask the religion question, you get a lot different answers. And I've actually seen more recent data, and I've analyzed this myself, that Generation Z, which are people who are born from 1995 onward, they might be over 40% religiously unaffiliated now. So like, that's a huge and growing group that we are only beginning to understand now about how important they are to our, our social uh, life, but also our political life too. And the parties are going to have to start doing things in the future to reaching out to those groups. And they're not doing a great job of that right now. You know, Ryan, you reminded me because people who have no religious affiliation are disproportionately young. You have the millennials started this and now Gen Z. You have two generations of Americans who are coming up who report no church affiliation in historic numbers. There's never been in the history of this country anything like it. And they vote disproportionately Democratic. They not only don't like Donald Trump, they they, they don't like they don't like the Republican Party, uh, just not 100 percent. But this, to me, you know, bodes the future in the future. The Republicans are going to have to figure out a message that simultaneously appeals to evangelical Christians, Roman Catholics and people who are don't have faith. That is a neat trick. I don't know how they're going to do it. And if you don't pay attention, you wind up like the Republican Party in California, which is my home state. It was the, in the 1990s. There was an election. There was a referendum. Pete Wilson was on the ballot, and I think it was Prop 211. I can't remember the proposition, but it would basically have taken away all government services for immigrants who are not here legally. And some people interpret this to mean even like Mexican-American children couldn't even go to public schools. The courts basically, the thing passed, but the courts gradually got rid of it. Just one thing at a time, hospitals, no schools, no, they just eviscerated. But Pete Wilson you know, he, the thing passed overwhelmingly, the Republicans endorsed it. And you know what? It was the last hurrah Republicans in that state. It was the classic case of winning the battle, losing the war, because his Latino voters, Mexican-Americans in particular in that state remembered this. And they associated the Republican party with an unwelcoming message. And the party went, and Pete Wilson was no bigot. He was a good guy. I mean, he's a very moderate person politically and temperamentally, but he got, he put his on this issue. He put his thumb on this issue. And that's what the Democrats are facing writ large on, on some of these religious issues. On the other hand, you have to win the election that's in front of you. And it's clear to me that when Donald Trump picked Amy Coney Barrett, as he galvanized devout Roman Catholics in this country, and they were already paying close attention. We did this poll with EWTN and we asked Catholics about, you know, social justice. And they come out, they were not they did not have bad feelings about Black Lives Matter. They support the goals of Black Lives Matter. That name itself is something a little different. But but when when you ask the questions about religious bigotry, religious intolerance, tearing down the statues of Roman Catholic saints, of people like Christopher Columbus who are revered in the Italian community, you start to get the question about religious intolerance. And Catholics react the way you think they'd react. They don't like it. They're worried about it. And Donald Trump, President Trump tapped into that in a way, and I, I don't mean in a crass or cynical way, but he tapped into that. But in the future, you know, there's going to be as these Gen Zers grow up and there's more of them and who knows what the next generation of voters is going to be. If they associate the Republican Party with a narrow view of religion, a narrow religious you know, view, they're going to be like the 
Republican Party was in California with Latinos. So it's it's a fluid situation. And even though the Republicans did better with religious voters than anybody gave them credit for, as you point out, it's the non-religious voters they need to think about as well. Yeah, I think that's – Carl, if I was going to go talk to RNC right now, I would say your problem is the God gap. And it's only getting worse. And it's working against you, not for you. Because today, 51% of Americans are white Christians. And 75% of Republicans are white Christians and 38% of Democrats are white Christians. And guess what? In 10 years, it's going to be 45% of Americans are white Christians. And how do you win elections when your base is getting smaller and smaller every year and the Democratic base is getting larger and larger every year? I mean, how do you square the circle of, okay, I'm going to be the party of you know religious liberty and religious freedom, but then the religious groups who care about they're getting smaller and smaller and the people who you need to get don't care about religion at all. Like you can't, it's hard to be the party of Christian nationalism while also trying to be the party that draws in some maybe libertarian atheists or agnostics. Like you've got to find a way to square that circle because I mean, let's, let's be honest here. The, the Republican candidate for president has lost the popular vote almost like, so in 19, uh, 2004 was the last time they won the popular vote going all the way back to Bill Clinton in 1992. Yeah, I, know I think the, it's like six out of seven elections. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that is, that is the, the structural advantage that Republicans have is what's keeping them afloat right now nationally. But I mean, demographically they're getting killed and they've got to figure out a way to peel. I mean, if this group is now 30% of the population, the nuns, you've got to figure out a way to peel off, you know, 25% of that or 30% of that. Otherwise you're going to be perpetually in a bad position in every national election going forward. And I just don't see the modern Republican party pivoting in that way or, or messaging in that way. And they need to figure out what that messaging looks like. Can you say a little more about what the, the God gap sort of looks like when it comes to race? Because I think that's part of it, right? Like you're talking about how white voter share is declining. Eric Kaufman, who's been part of this, Carl knows, you know, has written this book, White Shift. And he talks about how, you know, the numbers are, are cascading down in 2020. Voter share among whites fell from previously 16, 70% now to 67%. Pretty significant shift in, in, in four years. Whereas Latino voters went up from 11% of the total voter share to, to 13%. So we see sort of that direction applying on other fronts as, as, as well. You know, but best numbers I've got, Ryan, say that, you know, among evangelicals, you know, basically 76% went for Trump. 24 went for Biden. Among Catholics, 47% went for Trump. 52% went for Biden, as you guys describe a big uptick. How does race play into the God gap and some of those trends? You're seeing a lot of young people embrace the liberal label. I'm seeing a lot of that, especially amongst young black Protestants and young Hispanic evangelicals and Catholics. Like Those are labels that were like kryptonite for people of faith for a long time. Like the word liberal is like, has like such a negative connotation to it. But I think the one thing that Trump did was he pushed a lot of these groups to embrace the liberal label, like as take it up almost as a moniker against Donald Trump. I was actually looking at some data like where they asked to put yourself on a spectrum from very liberal to very conservative, and then put the two parties on that same spectrum from very liberal to very conservative. And there's so much fascinating stuff going on because like evangelicals see the Democrats becoming more and more liberal over time, white evangelicals do, but they also see themselves in lockstep with the Republican party. Like spatially, they're in the exact same spot the Republican party is, but then you see this, all this weird kind of stuff, right? Which is that non-white evangelicals used to trend toward the Republican side. So right of center ideologically, but when Trump got elected, they started trending back towards the center, back towards the moderate side. And they perceive the Republican Party getting more conservative, and they perceive the Democratic Party actually staying in the same spot from 2016. So they actually – they see themselves moving closer to the Democrats 
because of Donald Trump. And this is a group I think is incredibly important is non-white evangelicals, especially Hispanic evangelicals in a place like Georgia. Like Atlanta is exploding in population and it's exploding with non-white people. And a lot of evangelicals are growing. Evangelicalism as, as a whole is growing because it's growing, not just in, growing in spite of white people. It's, it's growing because of Hispanics largely. And so you're seeing a lot of these house churches crop up, these storefront churches that are non-denominational, that aren't attached to some larger you know organization. And that that's really the, where the battleground is, I think, in the in the state of Georgia right now is because those groups, those Hispanic evangelicals on social issues are actually really conservative. On abortion, they're even more conservative than white evangelicals are. On gay marriage, they're more conservative than white evangelicals are. But on immigration, they're a lot more moderate than white evangelicals are. So really, they're sort of pulled in two directions, right? Socially, they're pulled towards the Republicans, but then on immigration, they're pulled towards the Democrats. But then you've got this issue of socialism too, right? Economics. On issues of taxation, they're just as conservative as white evangelicals are. That's why I think Trump's socialist message actually landed with some of these groups because they don't want high taxes. They fled high tax countries, many of them. Well, they, well Ryan, they, they fled socialist countries. They fed totalitarian countries. Yes. My own view of that is that they wasn't GOP messaging. These people didn't need to. If you came from Venezuela or Cuba or your parents, you don't need to be told that, you know, you don't like socialism. You already know you don't like socialism. And when the Democrats, you know, Bernie Sanders, he, he, you know, he got half, almost half the vote four years ago and, you know, a third of the vote this time. Five years ago, if you'd called Bernie Sanders a Democrat, he would have corrected you. He would have said he was a socialist. So this is not like a figment of Trump's imagination. And I think that's the part that's tricky for the Democratic Party. I think going for we talked earlier about what the inside straight the Republicans have to figure out. I think that's the problem for Democrats too. They have to keep their secular base of young people to, who like Sanders, who, who don't recoil at the word socialism happy, while also appealing to Hispanics, uh, especially Hispanics of faith, who think socialism is an abomination. So it's a tricky thing on their side as well. Yeah, no, I here's what's interesting to me though. I was just thinking about this when you were talking. Atheists, when you ask them to put the parties in space, they actually said the Democrats have become more moderate since 2016. They've actually moved towards the middle. And the atheists think they've moved further to the left of the Democratic Party since 2016. So it just shows you like how perception becomes, you know, like whatever you perceive is what reality well, is for you. That's an odd perception in my view. But. Well, no, I think it is too. But also I think that's like, you know, for atheism, I think especially, it's almost a, a political religion for a lot of atheists. Like they're incredibly politically engaged, especially on far left politics. And so you sort of see that, right? Like the Democratic Party is too moderate for us. And now we've sort of made that our religion as being like ultra progressive. Most everybody else sees the Democratic Party basically staying where they are in space. Like evangelicals see them going to the left, obviously, because that's, you know, but they also see, by the way, the atheists also see the Republicans shooting far, farther to the right since 2016. So the Democrats have moved further to the right, the Republicans have moved further to the right, and they've moved further to the left. So, you know, like this idea of like framing, I think the one thing that Trump did was he was very good, though, at saying Joe Biden is Bernie Sanders, right? He is beholden to AOC in the far left. I don't know if that's true or not, but he made it look that way. And that was enough for a lot of voters. That's an interesting point because Joe Biden, you know, those debates were such a mess. But on this one point, Biden addressed it. Uh, Trump said what you just said. He basically said, you're, you're, a, you're a socialist. You want single payer. You want... And Biden corrected him. He was very precise about it. He said, no, I beat that guy. <laughs> his policies aren't my policies. It may have saved the it may have saved the election for him. 
Yeah. He said, I'm the Democratic Party. They're not the Democratic Party. I'm the Democratic Party, which is basically a nod saying we're a moderate party. We're not AOC and Bernie, which I think was actually good positioning because, listen, the atheists are going to vote for Biden no matter what, because what's their alternative, right? Just take those guys for granted and then try to get the middle. You know, I think that, by the way, I think evangelicals are like that too for the Republicans. I think the Republicans are too fascinated with trying to, I think Trump was too fascinated with the white evangelical vote and doing things to make them happy that he forgot they're going to vote for him anyway. So why not try to appeal to the more moderates, right? Like, I think that's what he, his messaging was not good in that way. And I think that, listen, white evangelicals, I think everyone needs to take them for granted now, just like atheists, right? Like, don't try to cater to them because 80% of them are going to vote for the Republican in 2024, no matter who it is. And Democrats, no matter what they do, are not going to win them back. I think all that messaging. Let me ask you a question about that. What I've been puzzling, it seems, and again, we don't, the exit polling we have is not great, but so- we're taking this, we know we'll know more in a, few, in a few months, but it just seems to me that based on these precincts that Donald Trump got significantly more Latino Hispanic votes than he got four years ago and and actually made inroads in the African-American vote and, and did better than the Republicans done in a while. Why? Why Two in that? 10 black men, right? One in 10. Well, women. again, we think that, but we're, we're not sure of those numbers, but right. So how did he do that? So I think I've seen in, in the general social survey, which goes back to 1972, I've seen that young black people who are religiously devout, so go to church once a week or more, they have actually become 20 points less democratic over the last 20 years. So I think that what they're seeing is the young African-American evangelicals, basically, but in the black Protestant church are fusing their identity with white evangelicals on religious matters, right? So they're sort of jettisoning that, you know, like the old historical relationship between the Democrats and, and black Protestants and saying, we're more like evangelicals on things like gay marriage and abortion and, and transgenderism and all these kind of things. And so I think you're seeing that's where Trump picked up some votes is that the, these young black Protestants who have higher levels of education, by the way, are saying like, listen, this might not be the party for us, the Democrats anymore. Let's think about the Republicans. And I think it's not a huge shift. Like this is not going to like change the black vote in America, but five or 10 points is enough in places like Georgia to really swing something, right? So I think that's something to keep in mind going forward is what does the black vote look like? And can the Democrats take for granted Hispanics and African-Americans like I think they've done for the last 10 years or so? Well, a lot of those groups seem to be trending towards the right. I don't know why that is exactly yet, but I think that's something to keep in mind is that that's good news for the Republicans. Bad news for Republicans is white people are declining. Good news is they seem to be winning back somebody else the non-white. So I think the Republican Party needs to figure out how to do more of that, the winning back the non-whites, and then kind of forget about the white evangelicals for a while and focus on the middle of the spectrum. Yeah, I've wondered if like issues of conscience, religious freedom, the marriage question, abortion policy have been has been sort of a quiet motivator for a lot of people of faith that played into uh, this election. But I guess not to miss the the forest from the trees, you know, the big takeaway from this year's election was that turnout was incredibly high and that, you know, instead of it being a democratic victory uh, that was expected, you know, we were very surprised by events, you know, that the other side is not going away, as it were. We get to live together. We have to figure that out. Uh, so I have a question for you, Carl, about polling. You guys uh, seem to have pivoted toward doing more polling engagement in, in recent years. Why is that? And it seems like you've been less off, frankly, than a number of the other bigger uh, national polls, you know, how is how is Real Clear's approach toward po polling uh, advantageous to the larger work of reporting? 
Well, there's two things there. First is we started our own polling unit and we didn't do we didn't do horse race polls. So we weren't in the Real Clear Politics poll average. We wanted to keep that separate because that's our that's our franchise. The Real Clear Politics poll average were closer was the closest of these major aggregators and organizations that that do this kind of thing. But nobody, you know, had it just right. And the Biden, we noticed the, the movement in Pennsylvania. We moved Pennsylvania in the last days of the election to a toss-up state. It had been, Joe Biden had been ahead there, four, five, six points. It really wasn't that close in the end. Florida, you know, everybody had Florida. Fox News had Florida consistently, five, six points in Biden's favor. Well, we knew that wasn't right. But but here's the, but back to the, the cosmic question about polling. Why were these national polls so far off? Now, Joe Biden, we're going to look back on this. If these three states that we've been arguing about, Wisconsin and Georgia and Pennsylvania, if they, you know, it ends up Nevada being Biden states. It's going to be, you know, 306 electoral votes. The popular vote's going to be after all the votes in California come in, whatever, it's going to be 5148. Biden's going to win by, you know, four or five million votes more, maybe. It's going to look like a normal election. It's going to look like 10 years from now, people look back and say, why were these people so crazed? This was a referendum on the incumbent. He had this problem with COVID-19. He didn't do well with it. He got COVID-19 himself. And even though the economy had been going well, it wasn't really strong then. And he lost He lost a relatively close but decisive election. That's how we'll see it 10 years from now. How we see it now is, why do we have national polls showing Biden up 10 points? How did this happen? And there's let, let's start with this because I don't know why, but every four years we forget this until election day. And then we hyperventilate about it for 30 days. We don't have a national election. We have 51 separate elections, winner take all state by state with two minor exceptions in congressional districts in Maine and Nebraska. That's what we have. The na- and so you're doing a national poll. That basically means one out of eight respondents will be from California, which is very heavily Democratic now. So the national number is always going to skew that way. And this this idea of the, the shy Trump voter, that phrase is an unfortunate one, so, because if, if you, you know, you're on the freeway and these trucks come by, this caravan of pickup trucks with their flags, they don't seem very shy. These Trump voters, they seem they seem they love their guy, enthusiastic for him. But the question isn't a shy Trump. You get a person on the phone and they're really for Biden, but they're afraid their spouse is overhearing him. So they say they're for the other. No, that doesn't really happen. But what does happen, we think, is the response rates have gotten so low in these polling that the old message, you know, pioneered by George Gallup in the 30s, I don't know that it works anymore. And and here's why. Here's what I believe we're going to figure out. The shy Trump voter, what he really is, is phone rings. Hello, I'm from uh, ABC News, Washington Post poll and click. And that happens a lot. But I think Trump voters do it more than Biden voters. But if you're getting, because they don't like the Washington Post, they've decided the Washington Post hates Trump. So they hate the Washington Post. And if you're, but if you're getting two, 3% response rates, this is crazy. You have to make so many calls. You have to build your model. You have to basically create a model. The future is going to be these large, expensive panels of people who've agreed to be polled. They're going to be 5,000 pools or larger. And they have to constantly be updated because participating in a poll like that for a year or two after a while, it has its own effect on the, the people become, you know, they become mini commentators. And so you got to ease them out and ease new people. in. we know how that's going to be the future of polling, but it's very expensive. And so the polling or there's going to be polling organizations that do it well. 
But these news organizations or these academic institutions that are doing polling, not because they really are interested in American public opinion, but because they want to get their name out there, as they're doing as a marketing device, those polls have not done well in the last two cycles. And I think I th- it's not polling that's broken. Uh, the commentating was broken. The opinion, you know, these people four years ago simply couldn't get their minds around the possibility of Trump as president. So all the commentators said the same thing, but the data was there. This data, in a sense, was not as good even as four years ago. Instead of improving the model, I don't think it was as accurate. And so what we're going to have to do, those of us who care about this, we're going to have to say we're going to have to all polls are not created equal. And we're going to have to be pretty make some harsh decisions about which polls we pay attention to and include and which we don't. My guess is that the two campaigns, the Trump campaign and the Biden campaign, had pretty accurate information going into the last weeks of the campaign. And you could tell because of where they spent their time. I agree, Carl. I think this is a reckoning. We've had two reckonings in a row. It seems like we learn nothing and then we learn nothing again. Now, listen, I've got it. My heart goes out to polling operations because this time it was especially hard for several reasons. One, Trump. I think Trump is a polarizing figure for whatever reason. People who love him, love him. People who hate him, you know, hate him. I do think there are some people who are going to vote for Trump, but wouldn't say that. I do think that's a real thing. I don't know what level it's at. I do think it exists, though. I think but here's the other issue. We, we just talked about it. Turnout was higher than we could have ever imagined. And when the, when the turnout model gets blown up, then likely voter screens just don't work anymore because your likely voter screen has to get larger. And we don't know how to do that on the fly. So when we talk about 20 million more votes cast, whoever's going to be at the end, we don't know how to adjust our models for 20 million more people in the model. So that sort of broke, plus COVID, you know, for all the things that with mail-in voting and all the things that tied into that. So there's so many like variables every four years that made this, I think this one was more difficult to pull than any in my lifetime for all those reasons and more. But I also agree with Carl, we're going to have to rethink this. And I think the way going forward is larger and larger samples are going to get us closer to where we need to be. You know, Here's the thing that people don't realize about polling. Like whenever I was coming up in grad school a long time ago, 15 years ago, a good poll had 3,000 people in it. I mean, if you like the GSS had 2,500, 3,000 people every two years, and we thought that was great. But now in the last 10 years, there have been several polling operations that have made their data publicly available that 50,000, 75,000. I have a poll right now that has 306,000 respondents in it. Like that is orders of magnitude larger than we could have ever conceived of 10 years ago. And I think when you get when you get your sample larger and larger and larger, a lot of this stuff sort of shakes itself out over time. And also, you know, going online, I think polls need to go all online, by the way. I think Carl talked about this low response rates in the phones. When you got 2% of people responding, you might as well stop. Like you're just wasting your time at that point. Let's go online, spend the same amount of money, but get 30,000 respondents doing an online survey. I think you're going to get more close to accurate with 30,000 online respondents than a thousand phone calls, you know, phone call respondents, which by the way, you had to probably call 15,000 people to get a thousand people to actually fill out, you know, complete your poll. So I think I'm in favor of trying everything at this point, like working with the social media companies to say, we'll pay people on social media to take surveys and polls and weight them and all this kind of stuff. Like we've got to really rethink how we do polling in America, especially as younger and younger generations don't answer the phone at all and are much more comfortable doing things on the internet and through social media. I think there's something to be said for like having a DM invitation to take a survey through Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is. We've just got to rethink what we're doing right now because we can't keep missing in Wisconsin by eight and a half points. At some point, that's worthless. You know, we now, but I will say this people say we should get rid of polls. And I would say, what's the alternative? You hanging out at the coffee shop down the road, focus groups, you know, like your Facebook feed. 
Like those are all terrible indicators. Are polls bad? Yeah, but they're light years better than the alternative, which is nothing. So I do think I'm still a big fan of polls because I use them in my job, but I also think they're better than nothing, but we need to make them better than nothing. You know, we need to make them better and better every year. Unfortunately, we have four years to figure this out and we can't really have a reckoning for four more years. That's the problem with polling is we can't, by the way, 2018 polling was very good. So let's just put that point out there. Well, we've we've got an election coming up in in a few weeks in Georgia. That's and, true. I mean, these pollsters are they are under the gun to get this right. And, and it might be close too. It might be within the margin. So that makes it even harder for pollsters when it's that tight. They can predict a blowout pretty well. It's the fifty two forty eight is the tough one to make. And I think that's where they're going to be in Georgia, especially in the in the Warnock race. Actually, I think in the Ossoff race, it's going to be really close. I think it's going to be fifty two forty eight either way. So. We're hearing a quarter of a billion dollars being put into that pair of elections. It's unbelievable. So I have one more sort of faith angle questions to ask you to, to you both, which is, you know, Carl has been at this for a long time. He's if we had a board chair, Ryan, he'd be our board chair. <laughs> and he's a close friend of Michael Cromarty, who established this project to work with with journalists and help them understand religion better. Curious about whether you think that's a, a bit of a problem in the polling space as well. But you know, elite journalists who graduate from Columbia University tend not to really understand uh, the heartland where you live, Ryan, uh, and where you're a pastor in addition to teaching uh, at school and the like. Is h- How are we doing? How do you think we're doing? I, maybe this is mostly a Carl question, but how are we doing in terms of peer journalists uh, getting religion? You still get, you want to go to a secular place in this country? Uh, go to a newsroom, in a big city newsroom. <laughs> you, know, you, you won't have to worry. This is a problem. We, we talk about diversity in the news business. And that means different things to different people, but, you know, mainly it means race. It means gender, it means, you know, gender orientation, but we don't think of it enough in terms of viewpoint. And so, you know, I was on a newspaper once and some guy said sarcastically, Oh yeah, let's really diverse. Let's diverse our, our staff. Let's hire a black guy from Harvard, you know, and <laughs> this is the issue is that diversity of viewpoints in these newsrooms and, and diversity of faith. You just, when I was a young, when I was coming up in the, in the business, you know, every newspaper would have one or two religion writers cover full-time religion. Those people are gone and they're gone because the business model broke. But before the, the business model broke, our journalism model was, was not great. And one of the ways it was not great is that uh, we didn't, we didn't hire enough conservatives. We didn't hire enough people of faith. And we got to a point because of the profession and the, where the people are coming and journalism schools that we probably needed to have outreach in this way. We didn't think about that because historically we hadn't had to do that. The newsroom was a cross section of views, but it isn't now. And these problems that you're, that you're alluding to, Josh, the reason you are, the reason that Faith Angle Forum is such a key part of, it, it's such an essential function uh, in American public life right now is that, is that you're, you're taking people who, who don't know anything about religion and are covering politics. And that to me doesn't compute because you need to know about religion if you're going to cover politics, because our newsrooms may be secular, but the American people are not secular. And if you want to understand them and write about them, you have to have some people of faith and you have to have some conservatives. You have to have some libertarians and moderates and Muslims. You have to have a a newsroom that truly is diverse in all ways. So that's my little, that's my spiel. I agree with you totally, Carl. I mean, I've, I've talked to reporters this week that got the editor said, you need to write a story about religion in 2020, go call somebody and figure it out. And they really have no background, you know, in religion at all. 
and I can tell when I'm trying to talk to him, like, I can't get you up to speed on like the differences between mainline and evangelical in a 20 minute phone conversation. Like it's way more nuanced or like why Paula White is not really an evangelical, like in the traditional sense of evangelicals. Like these are all like nuanced questions. I do think that there are certain organizations that do a really good job. I think the Washington Post has a great team. I think the New York Times has a really good team too. I think I write for CT a lot, so I'm biased for them, but I think they do a great job of being you know, being evangelical, but not being just inside baseball all the time. What I worry about is that organizations who who pride themselves on hiring more evangelicals are, are places like the Federalist, which is like, I'm like, okay, there are a lot of evangelicals work there, but they're not the kind of evangelical that I know or a lot of evangelicals I know. I think, but I think you're right. I do think that a lot of media companies think diversity means hiring someone from, you know, Indian descent or Southeast Asian descent or black or female or, you know, whatever. They don't think about hiring a devout Catholic or devout evangelical to work at a, a media company in New York City. And they really should because flyover country is full of people just like that. And those people want something too. Like I was thinking about, remember Larry, the cable guy, he was like a comedian like 10 years ago. He was like really famous. He was the top grossing comedian in America for three years in a row. And people on the coast had no idea who he was. Because he was a simple middle America guy who figured out his audience and just exploited it like crazy and did really, really well for himself. But he made no sense to people in Washington, New York, because he was just speaking a different language. I think there's Ryan, a whole- Ryan, when uh, we had Rick Warren come to the Faith Angle Forum, yeah, when and it was in uh, it was in Miami, I guess it was in South Beach, and is that right? No, it was uh, Key West. So we got Rick Warren to come to Key West to talk to 24 journals. And we're, we're around the table. I remember this on whatever day it was, Monday, I think it was. And there were some pretty well-known authors there, secular authors, David Brooks, Malcolm Gladwell, the New Yorker. And, you know, people had written best-selling books. Rick Warren had written, written you know, Purpose Driven Life. Yeah. He said something. It was a throwaway line. And he said, you know, I had sold 18 million books before I got my first review in an American newspaper. And people gasped. <laughs> and woman who was sitting next to me, I won't say her name, but she's a very prominent reporter, leaned over and whispered in my ear. And she said, that is all you need to know about bias in American journalism. 18 million books and nobody had ever re- reviewed his book in a newspaper. I talk about Rick Warren, like I throw, throw his name out, like talking to journalists sometimes. And you'd be amazed at how many people have never even heard of Rick Warren before. <laughs> I'm like, he's probably like one of the top three most famous pastors alive today. And if in you don't world. know- yeah, in the world. Yeah. And like, if you don't know him, like you have p- completely like cut off 25% of America, which is evangelicals. Like you just do not understand that subculture at all. Like if you don't know, like this, this is a little insight, like Rob Bell, the emergent church movement, Brian McLaren, like names like that. Like if you don't know those kind of people are John Piper, right? If you don't know who John Piper is, like you have, you have completely just ignored 25% of America, if not more. Right. And I didn't a, even know Tim Keller. Exactly. <laughs> like I understand that we all live in our own little like pockets of the world, but when your pocket of America is 25% of America, like it should be pretty well known outside of your pocket. And that's the problem is a lot of journalists grew up secular. They work at secular institutions. They don't understand religion only as like an academic concept, not as a cultural idea. And I think that's the problem is, and I, I will say the New York Times did a good job hiring Ruth Graham from Slate, who's going to go li- move to Texas and write about religion from Texas. I was like, okay, like now you're showing me that you don't understand and you're trying to understand better. That needs to happen more. I mean, 
people need to live in Illinois and uh, Nebraska and Kansas and write about evangelicals. There was a story in the New Yorker a couple of years ago talking about how younger evangelicals are more politically liberal now. They used a, a multiracial church in downtown Philadelphia, Pennsylvania as their case study for their article in the New Yorker. <laughs> I was like, okay, first off, the data, what are you doing here? Like you're, you're doing malpractice, basically. Let's go to a youth group in uh, Alabama and see how many people there are going to vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, the answer is none. So like you need to understand, like don't write a story with your idea and head. Like the editor's like, write a story about how young evangelicals are different. They're not, guys. <laughs> They're just as conservative as their parents are. But that's the problem. When you don't see the whole picture, you get kind of you get pulled down these rabbit trails that really don't make any sense data wise, but it makes your readers in New York City feel good because they're like, oh, but evangelicals are getting more modern. It's going to be fine. And the reality is that's not true. So I, I just think that there's a, there's a disconnect there that I don't know how to solve, but I'm glad the New York Times is trying to. That's a good that's a good green shoot for me, at least. Yeah, it's to Dean Backhay's great credit. And Ruth's terrific. And uh, so maybe just a closeout question, since we're, I know we're close to wrapping, you know, 60 seconds or so. Here we are, uh, 76 million votes cast for Biden, roughly 71 million, roughly cast for for uh, current President Trump. You know, we're super divided and sitting with it. If you're driving to work, uh, what's your best piece of, uh, of advice about how to navigate, you know, a divided country? I'll give a short answer, then I'm going to turn it over to Ryan. You need. You probably should just read real clear politics and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe watch C-SPAN well and read real clear politics. <laughs> I think the reality is, and here's what's really bummed me out, is a lot of my conservative friends have left Facebook and gone to Parler in the last like week or two. And I'm like, wow, that's going to make things a lot worse for everybody. You know, like when we don't even have common spaces anymore to like discuss things and sort of, I know Facebook's not reasonable, but like, I think it was more reasonable than Parler is going to be, you know, what, here's what I will say this. I am very heartened by the fact that 80% of Americans think the electoral result was, was legitimate. And the 20% are very loud on social media, but they're only 20%. I think they're going down every single day right now. I'm hopeful that our democratic institutions are greater than any political party or any politician. And we're seeing that some Republicans are trying to stick their head up now recently and say, okay, you know, Joe Biden is the president-elect. Let's let him get the PDB. Let's let him get security clearance and these kind of things. We have not seen widespread mass riots. All the plywood up on the storefronts and, you know, in New York City and San Francisco didn't, was unused. Well, maybe that's because Trump didn't win, right? <laughs> well, that's a good point. I think that's also a good point. I mean, I do think that like, you know, for all the, like, I saw a lot of anger, like the Trump, the three percenters or whatever, we're going to come out with their guns and like fight or whatever. That didn't happen. You know, we saw we saw anger, but we didn't see violence on a widespread basis. And I think that that gives me hope that our institutions are going to survive whatever storm blows against it. Um, we've survived a lot worse than this, by the way. We survived the Civil War, for goodness sakes. We survived the Great Depression, for goodness sakes. We survived, you know, the Vietnam War and the 68 Chicago DNC and everything that went along with that. If we can survive all that stuff, we can survive whatever happens over the next 10 or 15 years. But I think here's the issue. We have to be willing to say, I'm not 100% right and you're not 100% wrong on everything. We need to find common ground. You know, We need to find equal footing where we can have these conversations in a real way. But here's the other thing. We need to, we need to have conversations in such a way where it's trying to seek to understand the other person, not just try to convince them that you're right. And I think that's not been happening a lot recently. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that tomorrow's a better day. And I will say this, there's no better time to be born in the history of the world than right here and right now. And I mean that with all sincerity. I would rather be born today than at any point in the history of human humanity. We got coronavirus and they're going to develop a vaccine that's 90% effective in less than 12 months. That's an amazing feat. And I mean, absolutely scientifically, technologically amazing feat that could have not been done 10 years ago. 
let alone 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. We're going to get out of COVID. The economy is going to recover. We're going to go back to somewhat normal in probably six to eight months, which is amazing if you sit back and think about it. So I'm hopeful that the the next year has to be better than the last year. And I really truly think it's going to be because of science, because of politics, because of the economy. We're digging out of the hole right now and we need to look for tomorrow and not think about yesterday so much. Let me add one thing to that, Josh. Joe Biden earlier this year, I think it was midsummer, said it was a throwaway line at first. He said, you know, I'm going to work just as hard for the people who didn't vote for me as the people who did if I'm elected president. He actually got some pushback from the Democrats, from the left, his left up party. And he and he doubled down on it. He said he said that he repeated himself and said, I got some pushback, believe it or not. But that's who I am. He said it in his his speech at the acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention. And he said it since the election has been held. I think it's why he got elected. I think it's what Americans were looking for. And you assume that a president would do that, but that's not what everybody, that's not everybody thinks in politics these days. And for a guy to say that to me, going and adding to what Ryan said about this vaccine that we may have early in the next year, I think 2021 will be better year for this country. And I think, and you have, if you have a president who takes the oath of office and takes that promise seriously, I see a way forward for the American people. Well, that seems like a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Ryan, Carl. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, guys. I really do appreciate it. Faith Angle exists to connect cutting-edge scholars, policy shapers, and nationwide journalists. Thanks for listening. Thank you.